would turn with me in your Bibles. It's a little confusing. Daniel chapter 7. And uh, I'm going to make another change for the sound team back there. Only the first eight verses, I apologize. I'm sorry, guys. There's just too much to cover in these chapters. There's just a lot going on. And uh, I feel as if um, since we are starting this uh, second half, if you will, of the book, I feel like I'm going to have to give you a new introduction to the book itself because it's totally different than the first half of the book. And it might be helpful for us to read it uh, uh, with that different set of lens in, in mind. So uh, we're going to read the first eight verses and then go from there. So Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Let's pray again. Father, as we <clears throat> hear these words and as we meditate upon them, we pray, Father, you would help us to understand this portion of Scripture, uh, that we would know uh, something of, of your will uh, and how it has unfolded and what might unfold in the future, uh, perhaps in the near future, perhaps somewhere distant in the future. We pray, Father, that you would continue to give us wisdom in these days, help us to understand and interpret the times in which we live. We pray as well, Lord, that you would give us courage and comfort by the Word of God to know that you are indeed the Lord who reigns over all things, over all times, over all places, that you are the God of heaven and earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of the 19th century, two accomplished authors went to go visit uh, one of the most famous chemists in the world. His name is Pierre Berlot. He was a French scientist, a politician, and somewhat, you could say, a prophet in his own day, at least in predictions regarding the future role of chemistry. He was convinced in the late 1800s that chemical synthesis would revolutionize the food industry so that synthesized foods would replace farms and pastures by the year 2000. Because it would be so much easier and cheaper to make than to actually grow them on a farm. Of course, that hasn't happened yet. We're certainly moving in that direction, are we not? 
The same way his early study of chemical explosives made him make a few even in Matthew chapter 24, when the disciples asked Jesus about the sign of his coming and the end of the age, he said to them plainly, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom will rise against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places and the like, and yet all of these things are only the beginning of birth pains. The end is not yet, you see. Which is certainly reassuring on one level to know that uh, the end is not yet. On another, perhaps not. But we, we still have the same questions that the disciples asked back then. Uh, the same question that Daniel was asking with his contemporaries 700 years prior to that. And the question is simply is, how long, O Lord? Well, we've been singing this song again. How long do we have to endure this fallen world? How long do we have to endure many aspects of suffering and trials and wars and rumors of wars? How long until the end of the age? Of course, Daniel's generation thought that it was all going to happen very soon. At the end of the 70 years of captivity, many had come to interpret the scriptures from Jeremiah and other places that there was going to be a golden age that the king would be restored to his throne and that Israel would finally be ushered into this glorious kingdom. Of course, as Daniel is reading these things, this is when he receives some of these visions from heaven, correcting his understanding of the scriptures. He didn't quite have it right. And so more revelation was needed. But before we get into the content of the passage this morning, I think it would be wise to go over a few definitions. Uh, again, this is a, a different type of scripture altogether. Maybe we should have some helpful hints on how to not interpret it <laughs> in that regard. Uh, we are definitely entering into the second section of Daniel now with this chapter. For the most part, the, the first six chapters of Daniel would be referred to as something like historical narrative. So it's, it's telling what has God has done, how he has unfolded his covenant with different generations through time, and telling it in somewhat of a story-like nature. So it's easy to follow. There's not a whole lot of interpretation that's needed because it's plainly written and plainly understood. But now we're moving into a, a second segment of Scripture in, in the book, in chapter 7 through 12, that you would sometimes refer to as an apocalyptic literature. It's a different type of genre of literature altogether. Now, most people today would probably associate the word apocalypse with either zombies, aliens, or robot takeovers of the world, right? That's what most of us are familiar with in this particular culture. And we also have this mindset that there are going to be some really smart Americans that we're hoping that are going to take out these predator civilizations that are coming to attack us. But, of course, there's no mention in that secular version of the apocalypse of anything like the Antichrist or any beast coming out of the sea and certainly not the return of Christ. The only thing that they would have in common with the biblical understanding of the apocalypse is this idea of a future disaster somehow. Of course, the English word apocalypse doesn't really mean disaster, even though those are often associated with the word. But the word in Greek, apocalypsis, literally means an uncovering or unveiling of something that's been hidden. So it's revealing a mystery that has been hidden for long ages past and now tells us a little bit of a glimpse into the future. Sometimes just a few 
years into the future, sometimes much farther, even to the end of the age. In Scripture, though, apocalyptic literature doesn't serve as a cautionary tale like most of our modern-day stories do. It's not like, okay, we're watching out for these signs that we can start to fight and, and, and overcome. That's not the purpose of this type of literature. But rather, it serves more as a theodicy, which is another word that might be important to know. The word theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, means the justification of God. So in other words, the question is, how can God allow this level of suffering to continue on? How can God allow this type of wickedness to prevail? These wars and rumors of wars in which evil men are attacking innocent people. How long is he going to allow this to happen? And so apocalyptic literature serves as a theodicy to defend the righteousness of God, in which God is unveiling more of his plan to help you understand why. Why does he wait to bring his judgment? Why does he not immediately act, if you will? And so the purpose of this type of literature is to encourage God's people to trust in the Lord in the midst of all of this change, in the midst of regime change, in the midst of great suffering and wars and clashes of kingdoms. How can we continue to trust the Lord in the midst of these types of things and to persevere in our faith when nothing seems to be at peace? During World War II, uh, the Germans, many of you know, had uh, created an Enigma machine, which is a, a type of encryption machine that they, they thought was a code that was unbreakable. They could send code to, to their, their friends and their allies and, and be able to explain, here's what we're about to do, here are the, here are the attacks that we're about to make. And of course, uh, many of you also know that the British mathematicians were able to decode their unbreakable code with their own ultra system. And uh, in fact, if I were to put it in layman's terms today, for most of you who live in this part of the country, it's sort of like the Michigan Wolverines stealing the signs of their opponents in football. <laughs> right? So they're getting the code in advance so they know how to attack, how to make their own plans. Well, of course, the problem is they had to keep it a secret. The British couldn't let the Germans know that they had cracked their code because if they had, then they wouldn't have any more advantage. And so there were times in which the British literally had to let some battles be lost and had to let lives be lost and continue to act ignorant and, and try to find other ways to win a battle without revealing their knowledge of the Germans' plans. And so as a result, um, it was a quandary for them in many ways. But I, I could say in some ways apocalyptic literature it helps us to understand that God already knows the code. He already knows all the plan in advance, and, and you don't have to worry about all these enemies that he's about to describe to us in this chapter and any of the other enemies that show up in Scripture or any other enemies that show up in our own country or those who are attacking our country. You don't have to worry because God has already laid it out in advance. We have all the answers in advance. We have the code. The problem is, with this type of literature, though, the code is still code, and so it's hard to read. It's hard to interpret. There's symbols and, and very bizarre imagery that at times is shared with us. We're like, what? That's very much apocalyptic literature. And so, as a result, it's not easy like historical narrative to interpret, and that's why we don't often, I mean, unless you guys have done this, I have never, you know, turned to a new Christian and said, where should I read first? Oh, you should read Revelation first. 
that would never happen because they would be confused and dumbfounded in a thousand different ways and like well, how am I supposed to draw near to God with this? It's, it's very difficult but this type of literature and this type of imagery is known in other parts of the Old Testament. You'll see uh, uh, quite a bit of it in the books of Joel and Zechariah as well. Like You'll see these images of locust armies that you're trying to interpret. Flying scrolls, nightmarish horsemen that are coming to attack different parts of the world, and, and even a stranger with a woman stuffed in a basket who then is carried away by storks to another land. And, you, and you're like, hmm, not sure what I'm supposed to do with that. But that's very common. There's imagery that's most it's meant to point to something else. You're not meant to interpret it literally. So this whole second half of the book of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, is the most extensive apocalyptic literature section we have in the Old Testament. Of course, if you turn to the New Testament, you can see the same thing for the most part throughout the entire book of Revelation, even though the first couple of chapters have an epistolatory form. In other words, they're written as letters to churches. It still has apocalyptic elements strewn throughout those chapters as well. So the whole book of Revelation, technically in the Greek, is just called Apocalypsis. It's the apocalypse, meaning it's an unveiling or uncovering of something that is about to take place or might take place years in advance. And so it gives us this eschatological vision of the end times. Yes, I threw out another big word there. Eschatology is another word that might be helpful because whenever you read about this stuff in commentaries or any other type of online thing, because I know many of you read online stuff, I don't trust all online things, but nevertheless, the word eschatology means the study of the end times, or the study of the last things, or the study of the end of the age. In some ways, you could say we're in the end times now, but there's also another concept of the end times, meaning the, the very last day, if you will, and the very last days. And we'll find that uh, even in the book of Revelation, John uses both contexts. In some cases, he's talking about things that are about to happen immediately within his generation, and then other times he's talking about things that will happen farther into the future. And so it's important for us to understand the difference in timing. Not all things are meant to be interpreted now or later in that regard. Especially we need to be careful with trying to read the newspaper and then assuming that everything we read in the newspaper is what was predicted in any of these apocalyptic passages. Um, I can see why I would be tempted to, just because you have countries like the United States that might represent an eagle, and Russia might represent a bear, and other things like that, so it's easy to draw conclusions, but that's not exactly what's being said in these passages. Uh, in addition, there's also the problem of symbols and time, even the numbers themselves, when you're trying to figure out the time, you're trying to understand what the numbers mean. They don't always correlate to a very literal explanation. Even the numbers themselves can be interpreted symbolically. So don't misunderstand me. There are people out there that think that all the scriptures should be interpreted literally. It's impossible to do that. Uh, literally, you would have to say Jesus is a door. Or Jesus is, is the bread. Literally, he's come down from heaven has become a piece of bread that you're about to put into your mouth. That was a fight for many hundreds of years that has taken place in the context of the church. So how do you interpret something literally that's meant to be interpreted figuratively? The same thing goes for apocalyptic passages. It's not meant to be read the same way that you would read some normal narrative. But the good thing is, this should encourage you, much of what we're given in these apocalyptic passages is actually explained so that we know generally the gist of where this is going. 
In fact, it's interesting, uh, this is the first time in the Old Testament that we are introduced to the angel Gabriel. It's also the first time we're introduced to the angel Michael. Apart from the book of Daniel, we wouldn't know the names of these men, apart until we get to the New Testament, if you will, at least with Gabriel. But we're introduced to these angels for a reason, because in this case, the angels are giving the interpretation, which is strange, because up until now, the first six chapters, Daniel's the one interpreting the dreams of kings. But now Daniel himself is dreaming, and he needs someone else to interpret it for him. Because it's not easy to decode this code, right? And so he has lots of questions, and we'll see that particularly next week when we get to it uh, more in depth. But in this particular case, in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, it's, it's, it's important to understand this is a very pivotal chapter. In fact, it is the key chapter in all the book of Daniel for, for a number of reasons. First of all, if you remember when I gave you the, the first intro back before we began the book, I had shared with you the fact that most of the first half of the book is written in Aramaic, which is the language of the Babylonian Empire. It's, it's actually very similar to Hebrew. It shares the same uh, alphabet, and, for the most part, and has many of the same cognates that they have in common. If you know Hebrew, you could probably figure out some of the Aramaic uh, language as well, but, but there's also some differences. We're not exactly sure why the first half is mainly written in Aramaic, but there have been a number of commentators who have said that, you know, perhaps the second half, because it's so different and written in an entirely different language, really has nothing to do with the first half, and they've later put them two together to try to make it as if it were one book written by one author. But the, the, the seventh chapter helps us to see that that's not the case, because unlike the rest of the second half of the book, this chapter is still in Aramaic. It's not in Hebrew. Chapter 8 is when we go back to the Hebrew. But it's, it's meant to be part of chapter 2 through chapter 7, forms this chiasm, which is like an X, if you will, that shows that somehow chapter 2 and chapter 7 are meant to be interpreted at, at the same time, if you will. They, they have a lot of commonality. They're speaking about the same things, but using different images. And you'll find that the rest of the chapters in the book of Daniel, after chapter 7, are not giving you a whole lot of new revelation, per se, in, in regards to this greater vision, but are fleshing out some of the smaller parts of chapter 7 and chapter 2. So there's some cyclical revelation here. It's a continual uh, unfolding, if you will, of what's actually taking place. So it's, it's, it's helpful for us to understand there is a lot of correlation between the first half and the second half, but we'll see this, I think, uh, somewhat clearly even today. But it's also the most important chapter in the book of Daniel because we find that outside of this angelic interpretation, we're also beginning to see Christ most clearly in the seventh chapter of Daniel. Next week we're going to unfold that as much as we can to help you to see that indeed Jesus is the one that we've been looking for. He is the coming king who receives the kingship from his heavenly father. And how all of this, all of these strange images and all of this beast and all these classes of kingdom is pointing us to the coming of Christ. So we can't miss that. All right, so I imagine most of you are like, okay, is he ever going to get to the text itself? We're going to do that now. But I felt like we had to get a little bit of background material just to get on the same page here. So if you look at verse 1, first thing you should notice is that we're going back in time. Because in the previous chapter, when we last left Daniel, he was under the realm and the reign of Darius the Mede. And he had just been delivered out of the lion's den, right? 
But now we see, we're going backwards, probably about 10 years or so, not to the last day of Belshazzar's reign, which we saw in chapter 5, uh, but actually to the first year of his reign, which we're not exactly sure when that happened, because again, it was a co-reign between him and his father at the time. But nevertheless, it's this first year. So we're going back in time to fill in some of the gaps of what we didn't see earlier on. And this time, for the first time, as I mentioned before, Daniel's not the one interpreting the dreams. Rather, he's the one dreaming himself. We haven't seen this yet. This is the first instance in which he receives a dream, he receives a vision, and he doesn't understand it. Now, we're not told ever anywhere in Scripture explicitly why God often would deliver his revelation to the prophets through dreams and visions. It never actually comes out and says why. But in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, it does say the Lord does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. So we know that part of the reason why he's doing this is to reveal his secrets in a very pictorial form. But unlike with Moses, if you remember, who had the privilege of being able to speak to God face to face without dreams, without visions, without these oracles, uh, Daniel is getting much of his revelation through this uh, very unusual apocalyptic form. and uh, But he's also uh, told to write these things down. Uh, it's not just for his benefit, but primarily for the benefit of God's people, not just those who are in exile during this time, but even for our generation, we might understand something of God's covenant, something of God's ways. All right, so now take a look at verse 2. Let's get into the thick of it here. Daniel says in verse 2, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. All right, so we're going to try to decipher some of this code for you. So what is the great sea? Uh, if you have read the book of Numbers, you read the book of Joshua, you would know that the great sea refers to the western boundary of the promised land, which refers to that big span of water that goes all the way from Israel all the way to Spain. Which body of water am I referring to? The Mediterranean Sea. That is the great sea. So even though Daniel is now in Babylon, in his vision, in his dream, he sees himself standing on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea from the coast of Israel. Okay? He's looking out and he's seeing the sea and we see that it's a very tumultuous body of water with very, very choppy waves. Winds are coming from every direction and stirring it up. Right? So... It's, uh, it's meant to be a, a scene of chaos, if you will. In fact, it reminds me a little bit of the men's winter retreat last year when we were at this godforsaken place on the coast of Lake Michigan. I would say it was windy, but that would be an understatement. We didn't walk to chapel services. We were blown to chapel services. And if we weren't blown in that direction, we had to walk an extra 10 steps per each normal step to get to that spot because it was blowing you. But I had, I had the courage. I had, I had the nerve to stand outside just to watch the tumultuous waters that day for all of maybe a minute and a half before I couldn't stand any longer and had to go inside. But it was fascinating to watch just how choppy it was, how gray, how dark. This is sort of what I'm envisioning when I see Daniel standing on the coast of of Israel. He's not saying something, it's not a bright sunny day. This is meant to be a very dark and foreboding scene in which God is revealing something to him that looks more like a nightmare than a typical dream. 
So Daniel's standing there, he's mesmerized by the winds and the waves, but then all of a sudden, as he's been watching this scene to his great horror, he sees four otherworldly beasts come out of the water one at a time. And it scares him. In fact, I'd say if we were to try to put this in perspective, um, John Shane, you've been to Japan. How many Godzilla movies have you seen? All of them. He could probably name the top 20 nemesis of Godzilla, but I was trying to look them up yesterday just to get a better picture for this. But if you could imagine the citizens of Japan standing, looking out at the ocean or the Sea of Japan or wherever it is they're standing, and all of a sudden Godzilla comes out, head out of the water. And then after that, King Kong. And then after that, the three-headed monster, I forget its name. And then the others like that, for those of you who've seen these movies for the last however many years they've been putting them out. Very unusual looking creatures, mind you. Um, but each one of them is more ferocious, more scary than the first. And we're not talking little guys. We're talking massive creatures coming out of the water. So again, if this, if, when you're reading this, it's hard for us to connect probably because we don't, we think it's a lion. Okay, great. We see lions at the zoo, but it's not just a lion. We're talking a creature that looks kind of like a lion, but it's much scarier, okay? Same thing for all of these others. They're coming out one at a time. And, and the impression that Daniel gets, if you skip ahead to verse 15, you'll see, there he says, My spirit within me was extremely anxious. These visions in my head caused me great alarm. He's scared. It, it really is a frightening uh, nightmare that he's... Uh, enduring here. Verse 28 says the same thing. Greatly alarmed by all that I saw so much that my color changed. In other words I grew pale. I was white as a ghost. So scared of what I had seen. So, so that should sort of set the tone here for what uh, what he's going through. Now keep in mind, again, none of this is meant to be interpreted literally. I, and, and for those of you who like to interpret everything literally I apologize, but I, it's just not the case. Meaning that what he sees coming out of the water is not a real beast that we're anticipating to see, right? Um, but rather, some, it represents some other reality that also is evil in some way. Uh, so you're not going to see any mythological creature that's a combined thing of two or three different animals that's going to come out of the sea. Now, why do I say that? Well, if you look ahead to verse 17, Daniel says that very plainly. He tells us that these are not actual monsters, but that they represent kings or kingdoms that will arise out of the earth. All right? So everything he's seeing is a pictorial form that's meant to represent a deeper truth. Okay? In fact, you could even say the great sea itself is a symbol because they're not actually coming out of a sea. But rather, it says kings are rising out of the earth. So why does he say it's a great sea then? Because he's, he's using figurative imagery here to, to, to convey a deeper truth. Again, when you think about the, the sea itself at the beginning of time, at the time of creation, if you remember, God created the land and he separated it from the waters, right? There's supposed to be order and beauty and, and all of this aspect of his, his, his reign being submitted to even by creation. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 22 explains that God placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss back and forth, they will not prevail. Though they roar loudly, they cannot pass over it. Same way, Job chapter 7, verse 12. We're told that God placed a guard over the sea and over all the great sea creatures, even the likes of Rahab and Leviathan. So all those scary mythological creatures that other pagans have been scared of all their lives. He's saying, God controls all of this. 
There's nothing outside of his control. He's going to keep it within its place, if you will. There's an order to this. But what you're meant to see is that this is the sea become, takes on this, this role of chaos, if you will. It, it doesn't want to submit to God's will. It doesn't want to obey God's commands. And it becomes associated with the place of evil, a place of fear, a place of great disorder and chaos. So he's, he's using this imagery to help us understand it. So when you see a creature coming out of the water, in, my, in our minds we should say, this can't be anything good, right? This is something evil. This is something fearful. This is something that does not submit to God. That's the imagery that we're meant to interpret. And it's the same way when we finally get to Revelation chapter 21, same thing. You'll find that John sees this creature, this beast coming out of the sea. Immediately, your flag should go up and say, okay, this isn't good. Right? This is not a good thing. This is a scary thing. This is an evil thing. That's the way we should interpret this. Which is strange given the fact that at least up until now, we've seen God work with these kings and even redeem some of them and it seems like you know they're not all such bad guys but we're not getting the rest of the story of what they've done but now we're beginning to see there's a lot of evil here and even much worse than we've ever seen yet that's going to continue to unfold so it's something that we're meant to uh, pay careful attention to now on the other hand have I lost you yet with the sea on the other hand Revelation chapter 4 verse 6 we find that before the throne of God there's a sea but it's referred to as a sea of glass, right? It's referred to as this, this sea of crystal where everything is peaceful and pure and submits to God's law perfectly. Right? So on the one hand, you're seeing a place of evil. You're seeing a, a concept of evil uh, meant to be set in contradistinction to this, this great sea that uh, is perfectly at peace. So... So, but it makes sense, though. Uh, you'll find that, in, in, again, later on in the book of Revelation, uh, when it describes the new heavens and the new earth, John says, and there will be no sea there. What does he mean by that? Again, he's speaking figuratively to say there's not going to be a place of chaos anymore. There will be no more tumult. There will be no more evil and fear and all those things. It will all be gone. Now, does that mean literally that there will be no more oceans and lakes and ponds? I personally don't think so. You can disagree with me. I personally don't think so for this reason. Primarily because I, I believe that God in the victory of the cross is restoring all of creation. There's not a single aspect that gets left behind in terms of he's going to restore it all. The new heavens and the new earth, it's not a totally different place. I know some of you disagree with me on that. It doesn't say that the world's being annihilated, but it's being purified by fire. My mind is redeeming it all. So I still think there's an ocean. The only difference is it's not a scary place anymore. No longer 100-foot waves. How many of you want to go on a boat ride when there's hurricane-force winds and 100-foot waves? A few of you. It'd be, it'd be fun for the first couple minutes. But for the most part, none of us. That, that, that's scary. I mean, and it's so deep and so dark and so mysterious. I mean, it, it's a fearful place. If there is an ocean in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth, it won't be like that. Uh, but let's take a look at these four creatures again that are rising out of the sea. Verse 4. Daniel tells us that the first creature he saw was like a lion. Now, again, pay careful attention to this. He's not saying it is a lion, 
but he's saying it's like a light. He's one of these preachers, he says, it's like this, right? Uh, so again, he, he doesn't know how to describe it perfectly, but something like a lion, but also uh, in some ways has something that looks like eagle's wings. And in the same way, he'll describe the next couple of preachers as well, an earthly beast of some kind that looks like, but has very unique features. But the fourth beast is meant to stand out to us because he can't come up with anything that it looks like. Totally different. In fact, if you try to draw it, I encourage you kids, you want to go home and draw some creatures, try to draw the fourth beast, show them to me next week, all right? Don't make it look like me, but otherwise, <laughs> show it to me, I'd be happy to see what you've come up with, because one of you are eventually going to have to make a movie about this, that's all there's to it. But anyway, as soon as Daniel sees this lion-like creature with eagle wings, he observes that somehow it loses its wings, it stands up on its two feet like a man, and the mind of a man is given to it. Now, we know that the creature is meant to represent a king or a kingdom, so this is meant to represent uh, something in reality, and, and the most likely candidate for this would be King Nebuchadnezzar, right? We've just already gone over that chapter in which King Nebuchadnezzar himself loses his mind, acts like a beast, eating the grass in the fields, and the scripture very pointedly says that his hair grows so long it looks like eagle's feathers. And he grows what seems to look like talons because his fingernails are so long. He's taking on the form of an eagle, if you will. Uh, but at the same time, we also see uh, numerous times uh, in, in the Old Testament that the Babylonian Empire is referred to as a lion coming up out of the thicket. And it also is referred to as an eagle coming to take away its prey to another land. So clearly, the imagery that's being used here is meant to represent the Babylonian Empire, and particularly in this case, King Nebuchadnezzar, who, is, uh, who has gone through this, and now he uh, has come back to his right senses as a man. So now he looks like a man, instead of like an eagle or like a lion, and, and so be it. Um, but again, this first kingdom is meant to correlate with what we see in Daniel chapter 2. Remember, when Nebuchadnezzar sees this great statue, and the, the, the top of it is gold. That's supposed to represent his kingdom. Then afterwards, we got the silver and the bronze and the iron mixed with clay. It's following the exact same pattern. Four kingdoms, each one uh, scary and yet different, right? Uh, and we see that that's what's happening here as well. Now, there were other, again, other Babylonian kings that came after Nebuchadnezzar, but he is the one who sort of represents that kingdom in a way that all of us could certainly identify with. But as soon as Daniel witnesses this transformation of the lion with the eagles who now looks something like a man has come to his senses he sees a second beast emerge out of the water in verse 5 he says this one looks like a bear but again this it's somehow raised up on one side so it sort of looks like a lopsided bear if you will so it's sort of walking like this and you know doing this type of thing but he looks ferocious he's got these three ribs in his mouth and, and uh in between his teeth and, and he's told to devour much flesh. Now the, the suddenness of his appearance right after this other lion eagle looking creature is now come to look like a man. Uh, we see this other one come. So Daniel who was receiving this dream has yet to see the second king, right? He doesn't know exactly when this is going to happen but he's being prepared for it. Which would make sense that when Belshazzar sees the writing on the wall, Daniel has some insight into actually what's being said because he's received this, his dream, a few years prior, right? But he knows that a king is coming, and it's coming quickly. In fact, the, 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 the ribs in its mouth 
uh, suggests that he's already conquering now. So, in, which would be the case because the uh, the the Medo-Persian Empire had already been taking out other great countries even prior to Babylon. And sometimes, if you were to distinguish the number three, if you try to interpret that literally, it could refer to Egypt and, and, and Lydia, and then also to Babylon. But again, it's so hard with numbers in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, because you don't know if it's just meant to be a general figurative number or if it's meant to point to something specific, it's like in parables. Uh, there are certain aspects of the parables that are meant to be interpreted exactly correspondingly, and then others that are just meant to be generic material that help you to understand the story itself. I don't know for sure, but one thing we know is that it's already conquering because it already has these ribs in its mouth. It's already proving that it is able to take out Babylon. And so we say it's lopsided because it's this combination of two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians. But the Persian kingdom is so much more powerful than the Medes that one side goes up. Make sense? But there, it's an interrelated royal dynasty, so there's marriages going on here that are not going to break off from one another. They're going to stay together, but the, the Medes really have no power, no authority, but they've been subsumed, if you will, by the Persians. So it's this very lopsided beast that looks like it should have two twin shoulders here, but one of them is much higher than the other. Again, um, we compare this vision with the one in Nebuchadnezzar's earlier vision. It's now representing the shoulders and the chest that's of silver, right? So you've got these two uh, twin uh, groups here that are moving in this direction. Um, so little time. All right, as soon as we see this lopsided bear licking its chops, Verse 6, Daniel now sees a third creature emerge out of the water. And this one, he says, looks like a leopard, but with four heads and four wings on its back like a bird. Now again, notice the repetition of the number four here. It can't be interpreted literally, but it also could be interpreted figuratively. Uh, the, the, the number four, we've already seen a couple times already in this passage, the four winds of heaven. Right, just stirring up from every direction, and you also have these four kingdoms that seem to be taking out the the vast part of the world. So the word, the number four, can simply mean that this new kingdom is coming from every possible direction and attacking everywhere, which would make sense because the third kingdom in this uh, scheme, if you will, uh, would represent the uh, uh, the Greek kingdom. We think of Alexander the Great conquering most of the world while he's still in his youth. So he's going everywhere, attacking every possible way, right? And, and notice again the, the figurative imagery here. We have this, this, this beast that um, is a leopard, so he's fast. And yet he's also got wings. He can go great distances. So it's, you've got the best of both worlds in terms of speed and, and his ability to go everywhere. And he's attacking everything quickly and dominating everything so easily. And, and yet he has four heads. So possibly the, the four heads, other than the directions in which he goes, can also refer to after Alexander the Great, after he dies, there are four generals that were his satraps and also his generals that took over and took over different parts of his realm to where literally there were four different places that they were ruling over. Could mean that. Don't know for sure, but sounds sounds decent as a theory. Uh, but basically, again, showing that this is a... a a dynamic change uh, from the previous kingdom. Um, again, what we see in this one compared to the previous vision in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue, now we see uh, the bronze part of the statue that's lower down. 
Uh, but David doesn't spend too much time describing this third creature at all. He wants to move immediately to the fourth creature, which he focuses on very intently and asks the angel a number of questions about it, but unfortunately we don't have enough time to talk about it today, so I'm, I'm sorry. We will get to it next week. But I wanted to focus on something that we can actually apply today before we get to that fourth creature. What I would like to do is talk about the fourth creature in context of the Son of Man. And unfortunately you'd be here for about three hours if I got that far, so I'm trying to be gracious to you guys. Uh, but nevertheless, I want to I want to have a couple takeaways from what we've seen thus far. Uh, a few, at least. Um, first, notice carefully that even though these creatures are hell bent on destruction and are emerging from a very chaotic and evil place, it's God Himself who stirs them up to action. Don't miss this. Where do the winds come from? The winds of heaven. God is the one who's stirring up the sea. God is the one who's stirring up these kings to action and to take out these vast swaths of territory all across the world. And we know that to be the case in a number of ways, even throughout the book of Daniel. In fact, that's one of the main points that Daniel's been making throughout the first half of the book, reminding King Nebuchadnezzar again and again, who gave you the power to do this? Who raised you up? Who enabled you to take all these kingdoms that you're so proud and boastful about? The Lord. In fact, if you remember, the very reason why King Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind and acts like an animal is because God takes his sanity away from him because he boasts that he did it all by himself. And God is reminding him, no, I raised you up. You look at the imagery that's given in this particular passage, notice a number of things about that lion and its eagle's wings. Remember, it, it says he has these eagle's wings. As soon as we see the eagle's wings, it says the eagle's wings are plucked from him. And the word that's used in the Aramaic, very similar to the Hebrew word, it literally means like plucking hairs out of your beard. His wings are just plucked off. A major part of who he is, they're just plucked off immediately. And it's a passive. He's not plucking them off himself. Who's plucking them? Who's taking his wings from him? God is. And then it says he's raised up. To stand up on his How is he able to do this? Have you ever seen a lion raise up on its own legs and start walking like a man? No. God raises him up to stand like a man. And it also says, and he's given his mind to think like a man. God's doing all of this. And again, if you were here the first couple of sermons when we were talking about Nebuchadnezzar, I firmly believe that God has redeemed Nebuchadnezzar. This evil king who's come out of the water, God has saved this man changed his mind and shown him who the true king of the world is. But we're seeing many signs of this. In the same way, uh, the next king that comes into the scene, Darius and Cyrus and Persia, uh, very explicitly we're told in a couple places in Second Chronicles and Ezra chapter 1 verse 2, the king says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of this earth before he then explains how he was led by the Lord to rebuild the house of Jerusalem. He says, The Lord gave me your kingdom. And the Lord gave me all of these other kingdoms. The Lord raised me up. He's the one who stirred the waters. So as fearful as these creatures may seem to be, who's the God over these creatures? Right? The scripture makes it ever so plain that even these mythological creatures like Leviathan and Rahab and, and Behemoth and all that stuff, who made them? There's nothing that is not underneath God's power, you see. And then notice, too, that the, the command that's given to uh, this creature is to arise and devour much flesh. Who's commanding the creature? 
He doesn't say, I'm going to arise and devour much flesh. He's told to arise and devour much flesh. Again, this is God's command that's being given to him. In the same manner, verse 6, we see the four-headed leper with four wings of the bird that represents the kingdom of the Greeks. It also is raised up by God. Daniel says very plainly that this dominion was given to this creature. Again, who was it given by? It's given by God. So what does it mean for Daniel and his contemporaries? What does it mean for us today? It means that our greatest enemies are still under God's thumb. That all of these things that we're so fearful about, or even who the next president of our country is going to be, we're so worried about you know what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen to our children, what's going to happen to the future of our society and our civilization, all of this is under God's hand. He's the one who stirs up the waters. We can't forget that. Of course, it might not make us immediately content. That's why we ask the question, how long? How long do we have to endure this? How long do we have to see evil upon evil? And uh, if you want to know more about that type of question and how it can be answered, you might, you might want to turn to the book of Habakkuk. It's another very interesting book. It's not apocalyptic, but just more oracle-based. But in that book, Habakkuk asks the question, he sees the evil in Israel, and he's like, God, how do you tolerate this? When are you going to save us from this horrible thing? He says, I'm, I'm coming very soon. I'm sending the Assyrians to take you all out. And Habakkuk says, that's awesome. No, he doesn't. He complains. And what does he say? Well, well, they're more wicked than we are. How could you use them to attack us? And he says, okay, I'm, I'm coming to get them after I come to get you. I'm going to take them out. Now, does that immediately make Habakkuk feel better? <laughs> No, it's still scary. He doesn't know what the future holds. But you begin to see his faith take hold as he begins to understand God has already worked all this out long before he ever was born. And that's when he says, you know, even, even though the figs do not blossom, even though the crops do not come in, the wine is not flourishing, what will I do? I'll give praise to my God. My life is in his hands, you see. Go back and read about it. You'll see. It's a beautiful book. Ends so wonderfully after all the scary things he's been told but it's not until the new testament that we finally get to see the one who in a moment can command the wind and the waves be still it's done not only is the god the one who stirs up the waters he's the one who comes as well and says no more it's closing time. The question, though, is do we really want that to happen? Are we ready for closing time? Again, if your greatest fear is zombies and robots and aliens, you have no idea what fear is. When you read about the day of the Lord in the Minor Prophets, it will scare you to death. Because on that day, after the bear comes, the snake strikes. After the snake strikes, there's traps all around. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. You call out rocks to fall down upon you because the, the great wrath of the Lord is much, much worse than aliens. And zombies. You can't run. You can't hide. You can't fight. 
Do you want to face God's judgment and his wrath without any protection? We said last week that Jesus purposely went to the cross to die for sinners. And on the cross, he was surrounded by the lions. And he faced the judgment of God then and there so that we wouldn't have to. If we would look to the Lord by faith, that we could find peace with God, that he would calm our waters and be able to know that we're not at odds with God anymore. He's come to bring peace with us now. But there's still a day in which he's coming in wrath. And he's preparing us for that, even with this, reminding us there is a day. It is coming. My righteousness will be vindicated. But in the meantime, trust in me. Look to me by faith. It's the only hiding place you'll find in this world. God is our refuge. God is our mighty fortress. God is our Savior. Look to Christ by faith. Let's pray again. Father, we ask that you would help us as we wrestle over these ideas and have such a hard time reading through them. We know it takes uh, quite a bit of biblical knowledge as well as perhaps other types of understanding as well and symbols of logic and all those types of things. We, we pray, Father, continue to work in our minds and our hearts that we might understand, that we might know you and love you and serve you and, and be able to trust you and wait upon you and look to you to know that you're working out all of these evil things, all of these scary and fearful things even for our good if we trust in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would indeed help us to trust him more and more each day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The final hymn.